I'm a, I'm a writer. I write sermons, and I actually manuscript every sermon. I don't typically follow the manuscript. I don't know if any of you here have actually listened to one of my sermons and then read the manuscript, but they're often quite different. When I first started preaching, uh, I would uh, I would ask Polly to read my my sermon beforehand. And then I'd get into the pulpit and she said, why didn't you preach the sermon that you wrote? It was so much better. (laughs) My wife's encouraging that way. Um, But in any case, I like to write. And and writers, if if you're a writer or if you know writers, they're they're an anguished lot. They're a dark breed of human beings. They're they're often... they're often night owls, right? Um, they're off, they, they often go through moods and, and they feel like writing and then they don't feel like writing. And inspiration is, is a waif that is always being sought. And, and I did my very best to, to work on this message and, and it was difficult. This was a difficult message for me to prepare. Um, I'm not going to make these available, but I have 30 pages of notes and I still couldn't figure out what God wanted me to say. But, uh, as I mentioned to some friends this morning before the service, the airplane is on the runway, and the clearance codes have been given, and so it's up to the Lord now. We'll see how he does. But I'm speaking about a very personal topic, a, a minister's job description. And I'm speaking on a topic that's not just personal to me as a pastor, but to us as a congregation, because guess what? We've worked up a job description, and we're searching for a pastor. I thought it would be helpful to to give an example at the beginning of my sermon this morning. It would help put this in context. There was a church that was looking to call a new minister, but when the matter was discussed at a congregational meeting, the members made so many conflicting demands that the moderator of the meeting said, hang on, let's write out all what everything that we think should be on the pastor's job description and the church secretary will combine it into a list and we'll produce that list for you next Sunday. Here's the job description the secretary produced. Wanted. Minister. The applicant will preach the full counsel of God then after 10 minutes, sit down. (laughs) He will condemn sin without offending any of our members, especially the ones that give. His duties will extend from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. in what appears to be all types of work, from preaching to picking up college students who need rides on Sunday. He will earn $500 a week, but wear very nice clothes, buy and read very good books, and drive a nice car. He will have a delightful family with children who never misbehave, but who are very outgoing and engaging. He'll be 30 years old with 40 years of experience. He will be tall, but not seem tall. He will be an ordinary man, yet very handsome. And he will have one brown eye and one blue eye. He will have a burning desire to work with teens, yet spend all his time with the elderly. He will have a ready sense of humor, yet maintain a serious disposition, making 15 visits a day to church members, spending 20 hours a week evangelizing the unchurched, and 30 preparing his sermons. He will always be available in his office when needed. Did you guys take notes, search committee? (laughs) Things are funny, I've learned, because the irony 
is that it's too true, all too true. If there isn't some sort of clash with reality, sort of in our hopes and expectations versus reality, it typically isn't very funny. So this is funny, I think, because it's all too true. People either disregard the minister's job as irrelevant, as I learned working in a small country town, preacher don't work, right? Or they make his job so hard that it's impossible for him to succeed. But either way, the pastor is supposed to be okay with whatever treatment he receives, because after all, he's a servant of Jesus, and look what Jesus did. The, what, what people forget, though, and, and I don't think they forget it intentionally, but they forget that a pastor is just a guy. He's just an ordinary human being. Being ordinary, it trips us up as pastors. And I think the headline pastors that we hear about, that's part of the problem, is that they forgot about being ordinary, being a guy, being a sinner. Newspaper headlines show pastors struggling to be normal and the outworking of separating their normal life with what appears to be kind of a superstar spirituality. And if you're a psychologist, you understand that when you put a barrier up and divide who you really are from your work, it's just a matter of time. It's like a ticking time bomb, isn't it? Recent research testing data surveyed in the 90s by the Schaefer Institute, which is a PCA ministry at Covenant Seminary, over a thousand pastors were surveyed from two pastors' conferences, and then this research was updated in about uh, two or three years ago. In this survey, the updated survey, 100% of the pastors surveyed had a close associate or seminary buddy who had left the ministry because of burnout, conflict in their church, or moral failure. I would actually venture to guess that if you surveyed congregation members, that it would be almost 100%. People that have been in the church for just a few years. The survey continues, 89% of the pastors surveyed also considered leaving the ministry at one time. Over half said they would leave if they had a better place to go, even if that meant secular work. These are evangelical pastors. 77% of pastors surveyed said that they didn't have a good marriage. 38% said that they were divorced or currently in the process of divorce. And 30 said that they had either been in an ongoing affair or a one-time sexual encounter with a parishioner. Only 26% of the pastors said they regularly had personal devotions. They felt that, and, and felt that they were adequately fed spiritually. And 23% of the pastors survey said that they felt content with who they were in Christ. Two in ten. Barna has done similar research, so it's focused on the family. Some of those findings include uh, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry each month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or arguing in their churches. Focus on the family survey says 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. 80% of pastors feel unqualified and discouraged in their role as a leader. 
70% of pastors said that the only time they spend studying the Bible is when they're preparing for their sermons. I think these statistics are close, if not spot-on accurate. And if they are even, even remotely close, then that says to me that there's a crisis in pastoral ministry in America. I have dealt with these issues in my own life. I have dealt with these issues in the lives of my friends who are pastors. This is not a hypothetical. This is a real, present tense, live, not pre-recorded for a studio audience kind of a thing. I think it has to be addressed in two directions. First, I think pastors themselves need revival in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And second, congregations need revival in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's actually my main point this morning, which is that the gospel needs to be first in a pastor's job description. Our text comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4. I had meant to read this in the beginning, but we'll go ahead and read it now. Verses 6 through 16. With this context, let's, let's pay attention to God's word and think about how important a pastor's job description is. There are many elements of the job description right here in this text. 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, that is, of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation or explaining what's been read, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, charisma is the word there, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. I've been arguing or explaining or preaching or teaching for several weeks that the main point of this letter is that Timothy, which is Paul's interim pastor, Paul's protege, Paul's intern, was sent to Ephesus to work out some of the conflicts in that church. And the conflicts in the church, as I've been arguing, was not, um, it wasn't that they weren't sophisticated enough. The conflicts were that they were being too sophisticated and that they needed to get back to the ABCs. That's been my point week after week in this series. Paul's solutions for some evangelicals seem to consist in hard talk tough words, high standards, and serious inventories. I've been taking issue with that view of Timothy. I've been taking issue with the idea that Timothy is a checklist 
of a rigorous pastoral elder, diaconate, those kinds of things. The Timothy, rather, is a call for Ephesus to get back to the basics. That's been my contention. And as proof positive of that, in the first chapter, I've shown you that for all the sophisticated, intricate, kind of developed ideas, theology and otherwise, Paul comes back in answer to the false teachers and said, I am a chief sinner. This is a trustworthy saying. That, to me, sets the tone of the entire book. And he comes back to that in Second Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and in chapter 5, and in chapter 6. So that's been the theme. And so I think the same thing is true here. We think about the pastor's job description. What, what's needed is not, as I've mentioned, tough talk and high standards and serious inventories. But we need a job description that centers primarily, if not exclusively, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't dispute that there are serious inventories in this letter. I don't dispute that there is a need for tough talk when facing heresy. But I do dispute that Paul's essential description of the ministry consisted in these things. Wisdom dictates that when children are misbehaving in school, you don't just crack down on them. In the same way, tough talk, high standards, and serious inventories are without value unless you begin with a gospel, which is really the parent of all virtues. The problem with school kids that misbehave is where? At home. And the problem with, with bad standards is where? It's with the gospel. That's the home base of all of our spirituality. And this is what Paul does. At every point in this letter, he grounds his standards in the grace of God to the chief of sinners, which is, if it's true of Paul, it's true of the rest of us. So I conclude that the message of Jesus, the gospel, is what the church needs to be missional. It's what a pastor needs to be missional. To focus on Jesus' mission in the world, we need to remember what he did and why he did it. And that has to drive us. It has to be an engine. It has to be the thing that moves us and motivates us. And any departure that we take from that needs to be taken with great care, lest we forget the basic truths of the faith for something deeper or more important or higher. So I've called the series Lessons on Leadership for a Missional Church. And I've contended again and again, for us to be missional, we have to know the mission. For us to know the mission, we have to be changed by the mission. And that's our basic, that's our job. And that's the kind of pastor, I think, that we need. So I want to review this text that I've read, and that's the outline if you, that you have if, you, if you've got one and see if this text supports my argument. Let's see if this text supports the idea that Jesus is at the foundation of every aspect of a pastor's job description. Look at verse 6. If you put these things or teach them, if you set these things before the brothers, think of uh, writing on a chalkboard, putting them before the class. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith. The word trained there in the ESV is the same as the next word trained in verse 7 in English. But it's not the same word in Greek. The word in verse 6 of trained has the idea of being nourished. 
So what Paul is saying in verse 6 is that Timothy, if he's nourished in the faith, he will teach. That's the order. Paul puts the second, second as the basis for the first. Put these things before the brethren because you have been nourished in the faith. Well, what is the faith? For Paul, the faith is Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died a substitutionary death that we deserved in our place. And then by his own power and his sinless life, death could not hold him. He broke the chains of death on the third day and rose again from the dead. That's the faith. Paul wants Timothy to show that he's trained in that faith by teaching them these things. That's the gospel. So we need a pastor who has been trained or rather nourished in the faith. I think that proves the point. Look at verse 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The word for training here is different. In your outline, I've, I've written it as gumnazo. Try saying that one early in the morning. It sounds like gymnasium. This is, this is the intense effort that, a, that an Olympic athlete might have in the ancient era when the Olympics were first coming, coming about. This is kind of a, a life dedicated to training and to physical fitness and to honing the very sharpest edge of, your, of the sport that you compete in. Training. So what is the training that he is to do? Godliness. What is godliness? Fear of God. It takes an intense, agonizing, disciplined, serious, focused, long-term effort to love God, to fear God, to be in God's presence, to be changed by God. That's what Paul is asking here. He's saying that a pastor, Timothy specifically, but also all pastors generally, need to be trained in godliness. They need to be immersed in the life of God. And I mean that, the life of God. Look at what it says. Holds promise for life. The promise of life is there in verse 8. The only other place that that phrase, the promise of life, appears is in 2 Timothy 1.1. The promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. A godly minister is a minister whose life is united to Jesus Christ, who depends on Jesus Christ, who clings to Christ as his only hope in life and as his only hope in death. Not his success, not the size of the congregation, not how well polished his sermons are, not, what he, not how much he makes, not anything but Jesus. I think this proves my point as well. Look at verse 10 and 11. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially, or that is, of those who believe. Paul works hard because he believes that God is a living God. And a living God sent a living Savior to bring dead people like Paul to life. Paul works so hard at teaching others this because Paul knew that that's what he had experienced. 
And we need a pastor who knows that the, that the living God has made him a life and that that's the only hope for those of us who don't know that. I did a little research on this. And I looked up some different places where Paul uses this word labor. Labor. He says to this end, we, uh, the ESV here says toil, but other translations translate this labor. One example of this is Galatians 4.11. Paul's labors were meaningful when people left behind, if you know about the book of Galatians, they were creating spirituality by the things that they did. And so it was like, it was a ladder Christianity. The more you did, the higher up you went on the ladder. And Paul said, what's the point of all of my labors? If you think that you're being perfected and accepted by God by climbing the Christian ladder, all of my work is for nothing. Paul's work with the Galatians was to what? To bring them to realize that they are accepted in the beginning, middle, and end of their Christian life because of the work of Jesus. That's his labor. And in Colossians 1.29, Paul labored, he says, to present everyone mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. What does that mean? Mature means that no matter what happens to me, I know that Jesus loves me. And that's the point he makes in Colossians 1.28. He said that we need to know and believe and experience the mystery of faith, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is laboring that we would know that our only hope for glory is that Jesus is in us. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul's labor was to help the believers in Thessalonica to know that God wasn't angry with them. We don't serve an angry God, he says in 1 Thessalonians. God loves us and he takes care of us and we will certainly see him in the next life. Not as an angry God, but as an accepting and welcoming and forgiving and gracious Father. And Paul's labor in Thessalonica was to disabuse them of their myths about an angry God and to bring them to the realization that God indeed loved them. And so I wonder, is this what we want our pastor doing? This is a missional pastor's job description. There's more, and I'll be brief here. Jesus is the focus of life. I've mentioned this in verses 9 and 10. He's the living God who is the Savior. Jesus is the priority of the missional pastor's public reputation in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct. Why is Timothy to be confident in his outward behavior? Because he knows that Jesus loves him. Jesus is the center of Timothy's inner life as well. Not just in speech and conduct, but in love, faith, and purity. The inner life of Jesus, or of Peter, I'm, I'm sorry, the inner life of Timothy is love and faith and purity. These are things that can only be true of him as he has that, that close relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the focus of, of uh, Timothy's gift. I mentioned that this word is charisma. Do not neglect the gift you have, the charisma. I hope we're all charismatics this morning because we need a pastor who has a gift. 
And you see, only pastors who've met Jesus have gifts. Because men who haven't met Jesus have only themselves to offer you. Jesus is the, uh, of, is the focus of Timothy's progress in verse 15. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. I think the reason that pastors burn out is they make progress, but not through Jesus. The only kind of progress that Paul would encourage Timothy to have is that which the Spirit of God through Jesus was working in his life. Jesus is the center of Timothy's doctrine. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. What's the teaching of Timothy? That Jesus saves. That's the teaching of Timothy. And Timothy is supposed to keep a close watch on that. And when he does, Jesus is his strength. If you persist in these things, you will save yourself. This isn't some weird kind of self-salvation. This is simply saying that as you do and live and experience the gospel, the gospel will be true in your life. That Jesus will save you. You'll, by exposing yourself to the heart of the faith, you will experience the promises of the faith. My concern is that traditional, evangelical, Protestant, and Reformed exegesis, Presbyterian exegesis of this passage, focuses on things like this. How good is the pastor's sermon? What does public reading mean for our worship service and the regulative principle? What kind of behavior should a pastor have as he watches his life? How old should a pastor be? Because it says, let no one look down on the fact that he is young. How serious should our pastor be about the cultural decay that's going on around us? Things like this occupy much time in search committees and in pastoral um, searches. I'm not saying these things are altogether unimportant but they are not at the heart of what Paul's saying. They're not what we need first and foremost in a minister. As I said at the beginning, the thing that's missing in so many dysfunctional churches and in so many dysfunctional pastors' lives, and believe me, you don't know them because they don't appear to be dysfunctional, is gospel power, gospel truth, and gospel clarity. If being a good servant of Jesus Christ is putting these things before the brothers, then being a bad servant is not knowing the power of the gospel and trying to put those things before the brothers. Taking the things that you know, the information, the truths, the teaching, the doctrines, the catechisms, the confessions, the scriptures, the cross-references, the Greek text, taking all of that and not beginning with God's power to save. We need a pastor like Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus. We need ministers who know that the ministry isn't just teaching information. It isn't just living a stainless steel life. The thing that Timothy was to put before the church was more than seminary. In fact, I think advanced degrees were part of the problem in Ephesus. The Greeks in John's Gospel asked Philip a very simple question. We would see Jesus. That's the question that we need to ask of our pastor. We would see Jesus.
Here's a couple of applications for us. I mentioned this at the beginning when I, when I said thank you for the dark chocolates that I received, and I do mean that. A relationship between a pastor and a congregation is reciprocal. I've called this, in other contexts, corporate sanctification. As one person is made holy in the family of God, that has a rippling effect on all of us, even if you never know it. So if, if you're struggling with a particular secret sin and you say no to it by the power of God in your life, that helps me even if I never know it. Because there's something spiritual, even mystical, about our relations in a Christian family. So there's a, if there's a reciprocal a relationship between fellow Christians, there's a reciprocal arrangement between the one who speaks and preaches and then the ones who learn and hear and are inspired and challenged. And as I mentioned in the beginning, as you benefit and say thank you, that helps the preacher who's an ordinary guy, who doubts his abilities, who questions his, his effectiveness, and as the preacher preaches well, he blesses you. And so we encourage one another. We mutually strengthen and reinforce one another's faith. And I think the opposite is true as well. Complaining churches beget short-term pastorates, which is absolutely deadly for the long-term health of a church. If you want to see how healthy a church is, oftentimes it's useful to look at how long the last three or four pastorates were. Take a look. So this reciprocal relationship, that's an application because I think it needs to be said out loud. Part of our calling in setting a job description for a new pastor is to be the kind of congregation that will bless a new pastor. So if we need a pastor who's centered on Jesus, what does that mean we need to do? Center on Jesus. If pastors shape congregations, congregations shape pastors. I believe, as the saying goes, behind every great man is an even greater woman. Have you heard that before? I think that's true in churches as well. Behind every great preacher is an even greater congregation. I heard one story of an ancient um, leader, historic teacher in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition who went to a liberal seminary and graduated without being a Christian. It happens. The unconverted pastor. And he was going, as they did in the old days, catechizing and visiting, calling on the members in, in their houses. And he visited an old lady out in the country, and she pulled out the catechism, and she basically shared the gospel with her preacher. And that preacher was saved by that old widow. Now that's a dramatic example of a congregation shaping its pastor. But if that's true in that dramatic case, it's much more true on small, simple evidences and testimonies of congregations blessing their preacher. If you, here's another application. If you want a great pastor, Stay away from overloading the job description with all kinds of things and try to focus on the one thing that we've been talking about this morning. A man's relationship with Jesus. How close is it? How important is it to him? 
Here's another one. Great pastors aren't formed overnight. It takes time. Think about how long it's taken you to figure some things out in your Christian life. How many years has it been, for those of you that are mature in your faith? Now think about something that you're still struggling to get straight. Now think about a young man out of seminary. How long is it going to take him to figure out how to do this thing? Seminary was 10 years ago for me. I am still, still, largely confused about what I'm doing. <laughs> At least I can laugh about it now. In, in my first church, I had a man who loved me, but he, he, he came up to me often. Whether it was after the morning sermon, I preached three times a week for three years. Three different sermons. And he came up to me after, you know, every, periodically he said, Phil, you seem so tense up there. Why don't you relax a little? It's hard. I read in preparing for this, I read that the faces of the congregation are like floodlights into the pastor's soul. <laughs> and I thought, yikes. Again, in preparing for this message, I read about the Lilly Foundation has something called the Transition into Ministry Program. I think it's a 12-month or an 18-month program where a new pastor is paired up with an experienced pastor. And that relationship includes, I think, several kind of get weekend getaways where they debrief and kind of almost a coaching kind of a thing. Most congregations think that they're ready for a pastor to sin against them. You're not. You're not. Because it's fine if it's your neighbor's preferences that, that the pastor steps on. But if it's yours, that's a different story. And I'm not saying this as an accusation. I'm just saying it as the truth. It's who we are as human beings. We're no different than the people of God in the Old Testament who constantly complained. We like to think that we are, but we're not. Here's another application, and I've made this already, but I'll say it again. We can't wait for a new pastor to become the people of God that he wants us to be. We need to be that people now. Let me conclude. Preparing for this message, I read several tragic crash-and-burn stories about pastors who lied, pastors who cheated, pastors who stole, pastors who committed adultery, homosexual adultery, heterosexual adultery, pastors who abused their families and their churches. It was painful. At one point, I, I showed my wife one of these stories, and she says, I can't read it. It's just too painful. And many times I found myself saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. But what God is teaching me in ministry and what I believe he's calling you to learn as a congregation as you prepare to call a new pastor is that the job description, number one, needs to be a healthy, vibrant relationship with Jesus. Listen to this. Quote, Church happenings are team efforts, but the single most significant human factor in church renewal is the personal prayer life of the pastor. The pastor who is growing in a personal walk with Jesus is equipped to stimulate growth in the congregation. There is an inescapable fusing of the pastor's prayer life and the life of the church at prayer. 
This quote comes from an article advocating an idea that I've heard before, which is that economics may not work in a trickle-down fashion, but leadership 100% is trickle-down. What happens amongst the leaders inevitably, inexorably trickles down to the people, whether we want it to or not. Pastor will not only shape a congregation, though, but a congregation shapes a pastor, as I've said. This is one pastor reflecting on a 30-year ministry in his church. Quote, I often use the word story or narrative as a way of understanding pastoral life. The pastoral life is best lived when it is experienced as participation in an unfolding narrative. You can't do the discerning or criticizing from a standpoint outside the narrative that is the life of the church. It has got to be done from within the story of the church. The pastor must understand himself to be one of the people of the church. Of course, we're part of the sin in the congregation story as well, but hopefully, he continues, as pastors, we're, we are so well formed by the biblical story of redemption as to not be overwhelmed by the story of the congregation. Desert Springs has a story. It has many stories, actually, wonderful stories. And I think part of transitioning to a new minister involves telling these stories, celebrating these stories. But some of the stories need to be grieved, need to be mourned, and in some cases need to be repented of. But these small stories are not the ultimate story of this church. The ultimate story of this church is the story of Jesus, promised in the garden, who came 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead, and who is alive today, working in this body, I believe, in a profound and important way. One of the most important lessons on leadership for a missional church is that a pastor's job description is to take part in a congregation's story but at the same time with courage and strength that he only can get from Jesus to lead the congregation out of its own story and into the larger story that God is writing in the city of Tucson. God's conquering grace for sinners. This means that you have to grow. You have to grow in your love for Christ. You have to grow in your devotion to Him, in reading His Word. You have to become more familiar with the words of God with the words of Jesus, with the message of the gospel and its implication for your life. You need what Paul labored so much for in Colossae. You need to know the mystery of faith, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you need a pastor who's willing to labor, intensely labor, that that would take place. Let's ask God for this maturity that we need, shall we? Let us pray. Father, we need, so desperately need you. And, the, and those that are not part of the church, those who look in from the outside or occasionally come in and see what's going on to check out the church, they often know more what we can't even see ourselves. That if we would just be more like Christ, if we would have more of Jesus in our lives, if we would love him more, then wouldn't the church look more like it's supposed to look? Oh Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you that you are at work in our midst, that you are writing your story here. Lord, we do repent of the stories that need to be repented of. 
and some, Lord, we're not even aware of as of yet. But, Lord, we're ready. We want to be ready. And we know that that's part of what needs to be our job description as we write our new pastor's job description. Please help us, Lord, those of us on a search committee, those of us who are in the pews and praying for the process. Lord, help us. Only by your grace can we do this. In Jesus' name, amen.